welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jay Wall, RB. Uncle Gene, we think maybe the serial killer is going to join join us here. He texted us, said he's on the way. We'll see if he if he pops in here in the next 10 or 15 minutes. If not, we're still good to go. All right, boys. Lots to talk about. No big surprise there. But I want to tie a bow on something. So last week, Gene shared... I use the word wild a lot. I, I, I recognize that. I own that. But this, this story was truly wild. A, a story going back in... What was it, Gene? Like three decades? Uh, was the Spalding uh, some, story? Yeah, somewhere between 20 and 30 years ago. Roughly. Okay. Yeah, 20, 30 years ago, Gene tells right the story. Right around the turn of the century. <laughs> Gene tells this story about how Spalding, I mean, I, I would call it preferential treatment. They would take, you know, anywhere between 500 to 750 golf balls with, uh, with Gene's robot out to a testing facility in California. And they'd whack these golf balls. And then the ones that didn't fly wildly offline, those are the golf balls that they eventually would box up and give to the tour pros and everything else was fortunately that's, that's what the retail golfers were, were getting, but there is more to this story, Gene, as I find out And this, this part was, uh, if, if the first part of the story was great, this, this part I would have to say is even better. Well, so, uh, Tim Brienne, who was one of the former hosts of this the program, professor. the professor, um, I played golf with him on Friday and I was t- telling him about the Spalding thing because he worked for Spalding in Palm beach. And I said, you know, I was asking him, I said, is my memory correct on that? He said, a hundred percent. He goes, I got one you can share. That's even better. And I said, what? And he said, Bernard Longer used to come out to their test facility and stand with the spotters in the field and the balls that would land right on the center line, he would pick personally for himself to go play. <laughs> and he would call in and ask what the face conditions were. And if it was zero zero, meaning that it was a square strike and the ball went dead straight, he was basically cherry picking the balls that he would go play with on the tour. And I just thought, wow, that that is awesome. And that is that is a level of attention to detail that really separates um you know these elite golfers and i put bryson in that category and tiger and these guys that are so interested in the minutia of golf equipment because they know that every little advantage matters and it adds up to strokes and that adds up to victories it makes me wonder if longer's doing it how many other guys were going out with the spotters on the range and and cherry picking golf balls back in the day well i don't to be perfectly honest with you i don't think a lot of tour players even realized i mean no one you know such a great edge though like kind of similar like you mentioned bryson does this he would he's looking for all these weird edges against against the competition like maybe longer was that guy maybe he was bryson before bryson came along well and i think you know i'm just guessing here because i wasn't there but I'm sure he quickly saw, he saw a robot hitting golf balls perfectly. And then he saw balls deviating and he went, huh, all right, let's go look at the ones that went dead straight because now I know what, you know, he saw in his own eyes, what manufacturing tolerances were, especially back in the day. And so he went and cherry picked the best of them to, uh, to try to maximize his performance and maximize his equipment. I mean, hats off to him. It was an awesome move. Such a great story. And, you know, I think a lot of people were reading the one from last week where I recapped Gene's initial story on the Spalding golf balls. And they probably wondered, like, none of that's really going on now, is it? And there's there's no chance. The the manufacturing tolerances nowadays are so good. You know, sure, they're not they're not perfect, but compared to what they were back in the, the 90s. Like early '90s, light years ahead of the early '90s. There's no need anymore. It, it was wild. We would see, you know, retail level, tour level golf balls, and it, and it wasn't all the time. But 
we would see a golf ball behave like a range ball. You know, when you hit a range ball and it goes out and all of a sudden takes a right-hand turn, we'd see tour-level golf balls do that. And and it was, I mean, it was wild to see because, once again, I'm kind of in this little bubble. I'm at, you know, I'm out at the time at this polo field whacking these golf balls, and I'm going – does anybody else know about this? Do they know, you know, what's going on? And I don't think anybody in the industry wanted to talk about it. They definitely didn't want consumers to know about it. And Spalding was wise enough to go, Hey, let's, let's, you know, let's, um, let's get a little bit of an advantage to our tour players. Cause when they win with our golf ball, we sell more golf balls. So let's make sure they've got the best when they go out there. I got, I know another longer story with golf balls really quick. And I know that, uh, he was a long time user of like one of the pre- previous generation pro V one golf balls. And because they stopped making them and they were multiple generations old, he basically was using, I think he was using a, one of the Nike one golf balls for practice rounds and was only using the Titleist ones for tournament rounds because wow. he did not want to deplete his stash of those golf balls and only use the other ones for practice rounds. Which I just, again, one of those things where it's like, it's just silly, but you know, the man he's got the, he's got, I mean, he's got the champions tour record for wins now at this point. So uh, he's doing something right. Luke Donald used to do that. I remember being at a tour event and I saw this was back when his, his caddy was Johnny long socks and Johnny was out and Luke was hitting wedges on the, on the driving range. And Johnny, I mean, Luke's one of the best wedge players of all time. And he's just hitting wedge shots, just full wedge shots right to Johnny's feet. And he picked him up in a shag bag and I, I waited around and asked him and I was like, what, why are you going out there with the bag and, and shagging all these balls? Like, couldn't you just go get another bucket from over there? It's like, no, Luke's playing, Luke's playing a, a pro V1 that's no longer in the rotation. So we're, we're having to conserve golf balls. So for him, when he's doing warm up on the range, he'd have all these old pro V's and he would hit them and then Johnny would pick them up and you're like, yep, there are some golfers out there that they know what they like. They've had success with it in the past and they're not changing. Well, I mean, one of the running themes of this show since I've joined has been the, um, the ever present Nike golf clubs in, uh, in players bags that just don't seem to want to go away. Because when something works, you stick with it. Yeah, and that's uh, exactly right. I mean, we we constantly talk about new gear because everybody wants to new, know what's the latest and greatest out there. But at the end of the day, it's ultimately up to the golfer to decide if it's really worth it for them to change. And for a lot of golfers, it needs to be measurable improvement to, to change gear. And the pros are the exact same way equipment companies and we're going to get to that we're going to talk a little bit about equipment deals on this week's podcast but equipment companies can push the guys that play the new stuff but when you're talking about their livelihood it's kind of tough to force them to play something uh even even if they've got a deal in place most most, i've talked to players before and they've said look if if the driver's not good and it's part of a deal and i'm trying to to keep my card or I'm, i'm playing well with the driver that's not part of it i would almost just assume cut ties with that equipment company and the money's good enough nowadays where you can do that Um, anyway all right well we had a tiger sighting this week it's good to see good to see tiger back we we've it seems like he's been a little bit like uh like the loch ness monster we've seen these pictures and videos of him showing up at at junior golf tournaments with charlie did you all see the most recent one that somebody posted of Charlie and they were showing how far ahead his drive was on a hole from his from his competition and they panned to this kid in his group and then they just keep moving the camera to the right and then they keep going and they keep going past the bunker and you're like wait what where's Charlie and he's like 150 yards beyond this kid like I'm not kidding you it was I don't know if he if if he the other kid just took an iron off the tee and, and Charlie decided to cut the corner hit driver but I mean, here's Charlie down here, you know, arms crossed like Tiger used to in tournaments, just kind of waiting around for everybody else to catch up with him. It was pretty cool to see. But Tiger had an event called the Nexus Cup. It had 18 foursomes that had the opportunity to go out to Liberty National, New Jersey, where they had a chance to hang out with Tiger 
and Will Zaltoris. Great to see Will back. I, I, we're hearing that he's getting closer to, to hopefully getting back out on tour. Uh, you know, he's, he was having, he had another back surgery. And so it looks like he's starting to get back into form. And then Ricky Fowler, which I thought this is the funniest one, guys, because people couldn't understand how Ricky Fowler could get from Rome back to New Jersey so quickly. Like, wait, I just saw pictures of Ricky in Rome. How How is he, you know, this can't be real. This isn't Ricky. Ricky's over with the rest of the Ryder Cup team. I've heard of a private jet. I mean, it, it's not that difficult to to get back from Rome to to New Jersey. It it's not like you're flying to California or, or somewhere what? else. Anyway, I, I thought that was pretty amusing. Like a five, what six hour flight maybe? Yeah, it can't, just it, can't, it can't be that long. Yeah. It, anyway, so no. the three of them were there, and they had a driving range clinic where they're just kind of they're basically chopping it up. And the most interesting part of of this selfishly for for the gear nerds was when tiger one tiger pulled out did you see he pulled out a an old 8802 style blade from his golf bag i missed that i saw that i saw him play with i saw him do the one-handed wedges i hadn't i didn't see that no yeah so he so he pulls out an old 8802 style blade this is like the arnold palmer blade and then he's you know kind of taking some practice swings with it. And he also had, he also had the Scotty in there as well, but he walks over to Ricky Fowler's bag and he pulls out Ricky's Odyssey versus jailbird. And I don't, some people claim that maybe it was Jedi mind tricks, but, and I'll tell you why I don't think so, but, but tiger could be overheard saying as he's, you know, looking at this old 8802 putter next to, to Ricky's, I mean, Ricky's Odyssey versus Jailbird has a 17-inch grip on it. It has what I uh, commonly refer to as a slab of lead tape on the sole. And he's kind of eyeing them next to each other. And he he picks up Ricky's and he tries to take a swing. And he says, how do you take the putter back? I can't get the head to move. <laughs> and I, I'm sure Ricky, Ricky was, at least in the video, seemed a little taken aback. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Um and so Tiger set asks, continues to ask Ricky, he's like, so, so where are your feet? Like, where are you, where are you putting your feet with this putter? And, and what takes the club head back? Because I, I seriously, I cannot move the club head. And so Ricky says to him that the reason b- behind this putter is for a lot of people out there that know these high MOI putters, in Ricky's case, a uh, counterbalance putter, a heavier head. And it also has the, the larger, the larger, heavier grip. He said for him, he wanted to quiet down the left side of his body throughout the strike. And so Tiger's asking him, like, well, why would you want to do that? And so then Ricky's telling him about, well, the benefit of this putter is it helps calm my hands down. So I'm not getting so handsy, which is totally against what Tiger does. I mean, Tiger is like uh, Ben Crenshaw and a lot of the great putters. Brad Faxon is another one who who really engaged their hands a lot more. So this is totally foreign to Tiger. Um, but then Tiger keeps asking him more and more questions. And finally he gets to the point where he's like, I understand. I got it. Like the light switch went on for Tiger. And I'm sure there were people at this event, um, Eastside golf, shout out Eastside golf on Instagram. I love their account. Uh, they were the ones who, who shot this video. So we, we got these great insights, but people out there were saying like Tiger's Tiger's screwing with Ricky here. Of course he knows how to use the sputter. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, but here's something interesting about Tiger. I remember years ago, I, I spent some time with him and I asked him about adjustable hostels because Tiger was one of the last guys to go to an adjustable driver. I mean, he he was still using bonded products when he was with Nike. And one of the reasons why is because he he grew up with, with bonded glued hosels, so, so no adjustable loft sleeve. And that's what he knew and that's what he preferred. So when he decided to go to an adjustable loft sleeve, he started asking his, like fellow tour pros about it. He started talking to the guys at at TaylorMade. He he wanted to know what he was getting into before he decided to make the jump. And I think this is this is what Tiger is. He's curious whether he he wants to whether he openly admits it or not. He's he's a gear junkie who is genuinely curious about technology, and I love that because here he is with you know, whatever, 18 times four, whatever that is. I'm, I'm terrible at math. I was, that's why I was a, a journalism guy, but 
There's a bunch of people out there. Seventy-two. Stand- it's a it's a par number. That's it is, par it is. for <laughs> I thought of that. I was like, it is seventy-two. Seventy-two holes of golf. Seventy-two people. This again. Come on, I, I, come on I man. That's, math. That, that's not a my, math one. My, You're just supposed to my know fourth that. Grade, in this my fourth industry. grade son just absolutely laps me in math. He's like, Dad. <laughs> Of course, like how do you not know how to do this? My fourth grade son. Anyway, seventy-two. Let's just say seventy-two. Seventy-two holes. Yeah, seventy-two people out there (laughs) watching Tiger, and he's openly asking these questions. Questions that you would think, "Hmm, why would you ask that? Like, why would you ask that in a public setting? Because some people might be like, Tiger doesn't know what a counterbalance putter is. So I, I do. I love the fact that he's he is willing to ask and he doesn't care if people are going to judge him and i think this goes this goes to my next point which is why why don't like why don't regular golfers do this i spend so much time and i know chris i'm so serial killer is now here welcome serial killer and you know chris i know you spend a lot of time with golfers and it just seems like the the simple like the simple things like how does an adjustable loss leave work golfers think they know how it works and a lot of them don't and here you have a 15-time major winner who's willing to just ask the questions. And he's like, I don't care if I'm getting judged. I'm curious. I love that. I love the honesty from Tiger. I think if anybody can get away with with asking the questions that a lot of us just kind of take as yeah, obvious, I think if anybody can get away with it, it would be Tiger. And if you're going <laughs> to ask, true. you know, what is a you know, what does a loss lead do? What does a counterbalance putter do? What is you know, counterbalancing in general do? I think he could he could pull that off, and people would be more than happy to help him, provide him with information, or guide him down any path that he just wishes to explore, just for an opportunity to work with him or engage with him. Yeah, I I think more than anything, just from from this whole interaction, just the big takeaway is to to remain curious and to to not worry about. Like how people are going to perceive you if you ask questions about your equipment. If you genuinely That's, don't, if you genuinely don't know, ask. Like, don't don't feel bad. Like, we hell, we have a, a column on golf.com called "Gear Questions You're Afraid to Ask." So, like, just don't be afraid. Ask the questions. There, there are so many brilliant minds out there that are willing to help you out, but golfers are just afraid because they don't want to look like adult. I mean, plain and simple. And and which is crazy, and that's one of the things I I tell people when they go, when they ask about like <clears throat> going into their first fitting experience or if they just have a question. It's like there's there's really no such thing as a, as a bad question because you're just trying to learn. And if you're in a group setting or if you're in a fitting, trust me, that fitter's probably heard that question a hundred times. So like you're not the first person to ask how, why does the driver look like this when you open it up or close it or use the upright setting or any of those things, right? Like. That is not new to the fitter, but it's new to you, right? And I think that's the important thing is the goal, the, the fitter is not going to judge you for asking a question. They never will. And if they are, they're a barely bad fitter, to be to be very frank. So I think it is one of those those parts of the, of the fitting process, part of the education process that is just about learning and understanding. Because at the end of the day, the goal is just to play better golf, right? The goal doesn't matter how you get there. The goal is to play better golf. And if you can approach it with a curious mind and just figure out, okay, like why is, why does this do this? Or why does this do that? Because there are oftentimes things that are also counterintuitive where you could use a, a much stiffer shaft. And the next thing you know, it you're, you know, people would say, Oh, it's a low spin shaft and you put it into someone's hands and all of a sudden they're delivering it different and they're actually spinning it more. Or you give them a driver that has more loft, but maybe it sits open or it sits closed or whatever it happens to be. You're like, oh, it has more loft. I'm going to hit it higher in the air. Well, the next thing you know, they, the, the golfer changes their hand position. They're hitting it better on the club face and they're actually launching it with less spin. So there's, there are parts of this where it might seem counterintuitive to try and like go a certain way with golf equipment, but I've seen players go lower lofter drivers and spin it more because they're trying to hit up on it. And in when in fact they're actually hitting it lower on the club face, lower on the club face, more gear effect, more spin. It's like, how come I'm, I'm not spinning it? Like how come I'm spinning it more with these low lofter drivers? Like, well, did you even look where you're hitting on the club face? <laughs> so there's, and when it comes to putters, exactly the same thing, right? Like we talked about line goal. We've talked about like face, face angle visuals, right. eye dominant, left. eye dominant. there's all these different 
like elements of like even just like what goes into fitting a putter. And uh, shout out to the people, oh, by the way, from a couple weeks ago, who called in and reached out on the the hotline because it was the bio the the, the half pipe putter. The bio, the bio thank you. Yes, yep. we were we were wrong. They were right. Yes, the blue head. So, the blue head should have been the giveaway there. Yeah, um, which again very we have a great we we've got the gear nerdiest audience and we love you so uh we hey look we're wrong i'm admit just the same thing i'll admit that i'm wrong i i, I guessed the wrong putter and then we all went down the same rabbit hole we, did, but, we uh, all followed each other and i'm like hell yeah it's the it's the back strike and everybody's like yeah yeah we got to get our, our, our tommy gangy jokes in one way or the other but it was uh it was the biomech which i believe Heath slocum used at one point so yes. uh anyways again curiosity looking different the biomech putter is a great example of something that looks different. And now we have things like the, the lab putters and all this stuff. So um, just keep an open mind. Try something new. You never you never know how it's going to turn out when it comes to golf equipment. And that's the fun thing about it. Yeah. All right. It's a good way to wrap that topic. Next up is a fun one. One that I, I feel like is, and I, I think the reason why is because it's short. It's sort of uh, shrouded in secrecy. But golf equipment deals, specifically tour pro deals. I, I don't know about you guys, but I get a lot of questions about like what do these deals look like? And how much are they making? And why 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 aren't there why isn't there any sort of official information when a guy signs a deal? It's just it's a multi it's considered a multi-year deal and the the terms, financial terms are not disclosed. And I mean, look, when Rory signed his deal with Nike, there were numbers that was a $100 million deal. There were some people reporting it was a $200 million deal. So there's, yeah, RB's laughing because it's true. There's there's just not a lot of concrete details out there when these deals are signed. But I, I'm going to say he's becoming my favorite follow on Twitter. I guess now what used to be formerly Twitter, now X. That would be Michael Kim, Tour Pro Michael Kim. PJ Tour winner Michael Kim, and this guy just gives it up. I love it. He is—he's honest. He's got great stories, and he usually pulls the curtain back on a lot of on a lot of questions that that golfers have about the life as a tour pro. And one of the things that he recently discussed was how club deals work. Now, I've spoken to guys, and this is going back to when Brooks Kepka was just laying waste to the field at majors and winning them in bunches as a um, as an equipment free agent. And I talked to a couple of guys within the industry who did not want to be named for obvious reasons, and they put some numbers to like what is it? What would a Brooks Kepka deal be worth? And the number that they gave was somewhere in like the three to seven million per year range without the hat. Now the hat's the most important part because the visibility from a visibility standpoint, front of the hat, like that's that's where you're gonna make the most money. So for Brooks to get somewhere in like three to seven million without the hat deal, like that's that's a crazy stupid number. But Brooks Kepka was the hottest name in golf at the time. But on average, a lot of those tour deals, if you were a you know a first time tour winner, was probably in like the three hundred to five hundred thousand dollar range for a club deal. So there were some there are some numbers for you, but but Michael Kim offers up some interesting insights on like how how do these go how do these guys go about getting a club deal? And so he had mentioned that the first first things first is agent is going to reach out to the companies that he's interested in, maybe a couple that he's not, just to test the waters to see if anybody wants to send him product to test. Maybe they want to try and work a deal. Um, but he mentioned that. A lot of today's contracts, if, especially if you're looking at like 10 to 12 clubs, which seems to be a requirement for a lot of these deals, he said that you cannot find one out there that does not include driver in the woods. Like that is that is a that is a must. Like you're going to have to play if you're signing a deal with somebody, you're going to have to have the woods in there. Um, he was, mentioned. Um, oh, see, that was a requirement. Um, I know Mizuno changed that a couple like uh, I think four years ago. They did because they wanted they wanted people to realize that their driver was good and that they were were spending time and, and effort and money in R and D. You're right, RB. That's yeah. that was a change yeah. for them. And it was they were I mean they were one of the few that didn't really care that much. But in in reality, I think most at this point now, I know Ping is to your point. Ping is always uh, driver and putter for sure. Uh, I know Fina got a little bit of a little bit of leeway there for a while when he used a different putter, but but they got him into a ping and he went on to 
has gone on a bit of a tear. So, um, yeah, I think the, I think the, the inclusion of clubs is is very interesting because, like all these companies, and people ask all the time. I get the, I mean, sure, you get the question too. Well, if you could play one set of clubs from one company, like what would it be? And I'm like, honestly, I could play anything. I don't, I don't. Yeah. I'm really very unbiased in this whole scenario because if I if I went to any one of these companies, I could use any one of them, and in most cases, use a golf ball that they offer as well. So, um, it you know, it is what it's just one of those things where. But I'm also like a four to five handicap. I'm not a tour player. I'm not that dialed in that I, I care that much. Well, so, th- but he mentioned, and I thought this was interesting, that years ago, you used to be able to mix and, and maybe go to one brand for driver and one brand for irons. But nowadays, these companies, if they're going to be investing money in you, they want you to play at least like 13 clubs. And that 13 needs to include the driver. Um, some other interesting insights from from his tweet on on club deals. He mentioned that most of the deals to nowadays are somewhere in like the one to three year range. So when they say multi year deal, they mean like maybe two to three years. So nobody's doing. And he even admitted he said it used to be that you could get long term deals. Those are no longer the case unless you're a big name. Oftentimes it'll be a smaller upfront, but a bigger bonus if you get within the top, you know, fifty to seventy in FedEx Cup. And, you know, again, the most expensive logo for them is going to be the hat and you can do deals without the hat logo and just the clubs. But if you're going to do a club deal that doesn't include front of hat, well, the number that the manufacturers obviously is going to go way down. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the inner workings, but the most, the most fascinating part for me was his, was, was he mentioned that back in the two thousands, if you had a PGA tour card, you were guaranteed a club deal. Which I, I mean, I would say yes. I remember back in the back in like the like early to kind of mid two thousand, so like two thousand seven range, two thousand ten. Deals are everywhere, man. It felt like just like TaylorMade had a massive stable. Callaway had a big stable. That there were lots of guys that you're like, man, this guy has a deal, and that guy has a deal. All right, everybody's got a deal, but. Uh, Michael said that nowadays you need to be a top, either a top 75 player or a young guy with what he called quote unquote potential. And that's why you see so many guys out there with, with, you know, free agent deals or not free agent deals, but the no deals while they're going the free agent route. So, and we've talked about this, the equipment pie out on the PGA tour continues to get smaller and smaller. We're seeing fewer big deals. We're seeing more guys go the free agent route. And we've always said, like, well, man, I, I guess the money's so good. Well, yeah, the money's really good, but also there are just fewer deals out there. It's not just that the pie is smaller. It's it's that the manufacturers are are targeting those top names. And if you're not a you know a top 50, top 70 guy in the world, pretty good chance you're not going to be getting a deal. Anyway, I thought it's it is I just again, it's fascinating. And I love that it's coming from a tour pro who's willing to to sort of pull that curtain back and show a little bit of what of what it looks like to to try and sign an equipment deal. Chris, what was it? What's the experience? Um, you know, I, I always think back to that point where it's like there was a point in time. And actually I, I found this old golf magazine um and I was looking through it and there was like pages and pages and pages of like tailor-made ads. And there were other ads as well. I'm just not picking on I'm not saying exclusively tailor-made, but they had like all the bags of all the players like on the front panel and there were so many players on this thing. And it just felt like they were like Oprah handing out cars and you get a car and you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. <laughs> it's, a great it's like, you put the driver it. in play, we'll give you a staff, we'll give you a staff bag. Right. And I think, uh, is that kind of like, I don't know, is that what, it just seems like that, that was what it was like at the time. And a lot of other companies did not go down that route the same way. Hey, there was definitely a lot of staff deals out there, but I mean, as the talent pool got deeper and things got more competitive, I mean, there there are less high dollar deals being given. But also, I mean, let's just say three to five hundred thousand dollars is I mean, a big amount of money for the majority of us. I know it is for me. But if you're looking at a tour professional out on the PGA tour and they realize that okay, I get a five hundred thousand dollar deal. And I have to play 13 clubs from you know, said OEM and they may struggle with the driver, struggle with the wood, struggle with the wedges or the ball or whatever the case may be. 
a lot of these guys are realizing that if they stay brand agnostic, they can more than accommodate for that lack of income by a couple of cuts made, a potential win, a couple of top fives, top tens, whatever the case may be, and surpass that potential income from a staff deal. So a lot of the guys aren't really pursuing the OEMs for those staff deals anymore, knowing the fact that if they have an opportunity to play whatever it is that suits their game the best, income potential is higher and more consistent. So you see a lot of guys kind of forfeiting the uh, the staff deal and going down the route of I'm going to play what I want and bet on myself to make cuts and make money by winning. Something, one other thing, and I, then we'll, we'll wrap this one. But uh, when I was asking a couple of the guys about the Kepka inner workings of like what a deal would look like, one of them brought up a good point, which is usually when you sign one of these deals, you have to give up so many days for shoots. So that time is no longer your own. And so one of the reasons why Brooks probably didn't do a deal was because he didn't want to have to, to deal with the corporate stuff. And which makes a lot of sense. Like his his time is worth something and he just doesn't want to give it up. So maybe some of these guys that don't want to do deals, maybe it's not just because the money's so good now out on the PGA tour. Maybe it's just because they just they like their free time when they're not on the course and they'd rather not give it to a manufacturer for for an advertising day. Certainly something to think about. Another thing to to think about in this like whole scenario when we talk about with talk about deals and, and the things that people use is is grips and you know who's not giving out deals is golf pride unless you're a listener of fully equipped because you will get free shipping on your next order from fully equipped if you for for your golf pride grips if you go to golfpride.com and use code fully equipped to get free shipping on your next order that's available for all orders in the united states and there's no minimum purchase required. Now, normally I say that at the end, but I want to kick that off at the end because remember we're talking about deals and that's a great way to get them. But if you are looking for grips, they have everything from grips that offer a ton of cord and uh, control. We talked we talk about the MCC, which is a grip of choice for many players on the PGA Tour, which offers cord in the, in the top hand and a softer material in the bottom hand for a little bit of comfort for the hand that you know generally doesn't wear a glove. But if you're looking for comfort all the way around, there are grips like the CPX and the CP2. The CPX is the softest performance grip Golf Pride has ever created. And what they do is they use these different textures and patterns on the softer material to help reduce vibration. And when you reduce vibration, you reduce that, that negative feedback that you're going to get, which means you can practice longer, hopefully improve your swing. And um, not only that, but what studies have proven is that when you are fit with the right grip, not just for size, not just for texture, but for every other part of, you know, even down to taper, you're going to swing the golf club more confidently. You're going to swing it faster and you're going to gain yardage as well. So once again, if you want to try out any of the awesome golf pride grips that they offer, and don't forget they offer putter grips as well, head over to golfpride.com, use code fully equipped and get free shipping on your next order. Speaking of golf pride, did you see the, the collaboration that they did with Asher? It's sick. It's oh, awesome. I like it. Yeah. So they, for those that haven't seen it, I posted some pictures of of the new collab up on up on my Instagram, which is at Jonathan Arwal. And they decided to pair a golf glove, an Asher golf glove, with a golf pride grip, but they're the exact same color. So you can color match here. So they've got I called it maroon because I'm an Aggie. So that's maroon to me, but they call the colors oxblood, which is also pretty awesome. And it's it's like this sick looking grip with a really cool glove and the colors match. And they've got a couple other options. They've got one that's called, that's uh, the color is cognac. Another one that's spruce. Obviously, it's more of a green color and then ash. Anyway, you can go check it out if you want. You can buy the glove and 13 grips. I think you get it for 175 with a with a collection box. Anyway, go go check it out. It's a really cool collab. I love that that Golf Pride's doing something a little bit different. Gene, is there a way to test grips on the robot? I know we talked so much about the robot. I'm just curious like how it cl- clamps the cl- club or you know, is there a way to cl- measure that or it it clamps it too hard and um and the main reason is so the human hands are amazing in that they can hold something, but they have forgiveness. 
they have memory basically. So, you know, unless the club totally twists in your hands, when you make contact, your, your muscles and tendons absorb the energy, but then they return to that position. Um, to get that light of a grip on the robot, the club would spin after one shot. So we have to tighten down the grip pretty tightly in order to do that. But we've looked at different kind of like memory foam to go to a lighter um, type gripping mechanism. Unfortunately, to be perfectly frank, nobody's been willing to pay me for it and there just hasn't been enough of an interest. So we, you know, we haven't done it, but, I've I've given it a decent amount of thought, and it is one of the areas that um, is is different. You know, it's it's been fascinating, uh, and this exists in putters, but especially with drivers. You know, it's funny. You know, I do work with Bryson when he comes out. He's got that jumbo grip. I can't even get it in the robot, and I have to cut it off and put a normal size grip on, but it gets you understanding the biomechanics of a grip. In other words, he's got such velocity and he's trying to minimize closure. And what closure means is as the face goes from open to close because everything is on an arc, he's trying to minimize that because the best way to swing a golf club would be a pendulum style swing straight back and straight through. Well, you can only hit the ball about 15 yards. That's why you can only really use that, you know, say chipping on a 15 yard shot. So as you rotate and swing, you have closure, but closure requires timing because the faster your closure, the better hand eye coordination you have to have. So he goes to a bigger grip to minimize that, to try to make a more consistent swing and minimize closure. So grip size um, grip material can all affect closure biomechanically. We can't test it robotically, but I have looked at it and looked at launch monitor data in relation to it in relation to players, and it definitely exists. So there are many different aspects of the grip, and you just think, oh, it's just a grip. It's just what I hold at the end of the handle. No, it's actually a vital component of the um, entire piece of equipment that you're swinging. The Adri didn't end three minutes ago, by the way. We just continued this nerdy conversation. But it made me it, you I'll mentioned take that the blame for mentioning the the Asher and Golf Pride collaboration, which spawned this conversation. The the the, the worst part, which like immediately put it into my head, um, is Gene Gene told this story last one of the last times we were down. Um see, I'm gonna tell the story that Gene told me because then I don't know. <laughs> but what happened was you're testing so- uh, soccer shoes or football shoes. Yes. And so you used a, a prosthetic leg yes. to test texture for for spin on a soccer ball yeah. and all i could think of as you were mentioning that was well couldn't you just get some prosthetic hands then instead of <laughs> figure out a way to get those in the robot <laughs> and then we could test grips i know i'm like again it's it's a it's it's a it's an odd one but i'm just the putting wheels it out are turning in jesus that's that's really the, interesting that's really the grip interesting. conversation is is always kind of an interesting one because the to gene's point the human element is is really unique when it comes to grips so there's been studies done in mocap and having sensors underneath the hands and underneath the grip and throughout the shaft and some players will take a larger grip and squeeze it and it'll influence their rate of rotation and rate of closure and some players will take a smaller grip and have essentially the same outcome so there's not an absolute larger grip does this or smaller grip does this the human element is very interesting because size, density, texture is essentially personal preference and feel and your interpretation of how the grip is actually reacting throughout your swinging motion. And so it's to say a large grip does X. Well, it does X for a percentage of the population, but it doesn't work for everybody. And the same kind of thing can be said for a soft grip versus a firm grip. So it's, it's always interesting in a fitting environment. When people say, well, what size grip should I play? And go, well, play whatever feels good to you. Well, what what type of grip should I play? Okay, do your hands sweat? Okay, here's a sample of grips you can play. Uh, and if your hands don't sweat, the world is your oyster. Play whatever feels comfortable. So yeah. grips are always an interesting conversation because antiquated thought process was oh, a large grip is you know, great for somebody that hooks the ball. And if you slice a small grip, we'll help you fix your slice. Well, that's 
true to a point, but it's not an absolute. You know what else is an interesting conversation? The fact that some of us had to work last week and one of us went on a boondoggle without the rest of the crew. He took his wife. What the hell, RB? It was a weekend. It was only 48 whatever, hours. Whatever, man. So one it of, looks one like of us, a hell of a One of us went to go have fun and, and play golf. And, you know. And what, I was what, in Manhattan getting rained on. Straight. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was a billion degrees here in, in Dallas. Gene can't complain because he's out in sunny. I went and saw so. Jungle at the Forum. It was awesome. Yeah. I'm sure it was like perfect weather. But RB did go on a trip. Where, do we even want to talk about this? I don't want to hear. Where, you know, it's just going to rub it in. RB, where'd you go? Uh, so uh, my wife and I, well, we went out to to PEI, which is Prince Edward Island, which is a, is a tiny little province outside on the east coast of Canada. It's it's off the coast of uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. A lot of people are familiar where, where Nova Scotia is because that's where a lot of the, the Cabot courses are, of course. Um, but before Cabot, I mean, PEI was the the Canada's little golf destination on the on the east coast there because there's over 30 golf courses and this island only has you know a natural population of around say 100,000 people but in the summertime it, it more than doubles because it's obviously it's a it's a beautiful place to visit so i was uh we went out we spent 48 hours in pi and we played uh kind of i would say three of the top courses that are that are out there as well as uh went to this this all inclusive uh dining experience which is um it's called the Inpay Fortune it was a uh, it's by it's run by Chef Michael Smith, who's who he actually is a is a New Yorker, but he's also a Canadian, so he's got the dual dual passport thing, citizenship, and uh, used to have a TV show, and it's all about farm to table. So I'm sure you saw there was lots of food. Uh, I've of one thing I didn't eat, which I, I stopped Chris in looking. I, I just yeah. I, I had I had to turn off my social media. I can't. It, it did look like an amazing trip. Food I awesome. know Chris is in New York and like the one thing I didn't eat while I was away, which is like normally my thing is like pizza. So no pizza, all seafood, all oysters. You can't eat pizza uh, when you're, when you're, no, in I know. PEI. Yeah. Seafood. So yeah, I was like, I was all in on uh, fish tacos and fish and chips. And actually the funny thing is my wife had her, uh, the first oyster she'd ever eaten. And it was, you know, the big part of it is because it's at the table. It's like tasting menus. Like just try, try different things. Right. And, uh, Took some hype. I'm like, I was like the hype man. I'm like, it's fine. You're gonna like it. You like, like you, you like food like this. You just gotta try it. And uh, she loved it. But as far as the golf was concerned, we played uh, again three courses. We played uh, Brudenell and uh, Dunderay, which are actually two courses that are basically side by side. The the Dunderay course, we only played the front nine, yeah, just because of the time that we were out there. We only planned to play 27 holes that day. And then the we ended up the next morning teeing off very early at uh, what is a call it like the crown jewel or like the the main kind of tourist attraction golf course out there which is uh the links at cope crowbush cove which has a ton of golf like ton of holes along the water as well as kind of inland holes and it was a blast it was it was beautiful the it was actually humid you know you're talking about you know we're on the ocean but it was uh it was pretty humid out there it was nice and warm and we, we played with some great people actually funny story uh you know, I always joke when I play with strangers, I kind of like look at their equipment and kind of like, you know, try to figure these things out. Played with this uh, nice couple first day at, um, at Brudenell and this, the one, the woman was hitting her driver, like mega low, like super, super low. And I said, we got to like the 14th hole. I'm like, I don't want to start this off early. We got to like, we got to take a sample size here. And I said, can I see your driver for a second? And I looked at it and it was a, I think it was like an M- M6 with 12 degrees of loft on it and it was set to standard. I said, can I, can I like tweak this for you? She, oh, you can do anything you want to this thing. Like she was, she wasn't struggling with it, but she just, she had a miss. Like she had a very consistent miss. And a couple of clicks later, two holes later, we're on another par four. And it's just like, boom, must've carried double in the air, how far she was carrying it before. And like, she was, I don't know, she was probably carrying like 70, 80 yards. Um, so she, she definitely carried it well over a hundred yards. And it was like, what'd you do? I said, I just added loft to it. Like, you know, it's, it's very simple. And then she asked, what do you, what do you do? How do you know this stuff? And I was like, okay, okay. Well, you do that. Do you know who I am? No, I did not do that. I, no, that's definitely not. That's not my move. That's um, just for G. Not, yeah. That's not I'm the robot move. guy. But, uh, yeah, we, we, so, uh, we spent, uh, basically 48 hours in PEI. It was, it was beautiful food, like golf. Everything was amazing. And the one thing too, is 
which I, I don't think a lot of people like think about when they think about destination golf is it's extremely affordable as well. Like it, again, you can go, you know, there'll be pictures. I got all kinds of pictures and stuff on my social media, which you can check out. But I mean, to play Crowbush is like very, very reasonable. Like if you're, um, I think the time of year where we are, it's, it's right around about a hundred dollars. If you want to play like peak season, it's 140 bucks. And we're talking oceanside golf. It's the course is in amazing shape. So I think if you are if you are a person who's like interested in, in going somewhere where you're gonna, it's not a resort. There are like resorts as part of this, and those two golf courses are the first two golf courses I mentioned. But you can do all kinds of golf on this island. You can do you can travel all over the place. You can get to basically anywhere within like 45 minutes if you kind of stay central and just kind of shoot out and go play golf with your buddies or with your wife, I, which I enjoy playing golf with. Um, it's a great destination. So I think if anyone's uh, really curious to check it out, uh, thanks to the golf golf PI for the, uh, the invitation. Cause it was something that, uh, I know I really enjoyed my wife really enjoyed and she's not like, she's not a de- like a travel golfer. I know we talked about, I went to Scotland this year as well. Uh, but she was really excited to play it and she had a blast. So definitely encourage anyone else to go. And Hey, by the way, I know you guys are all American. Remember you cross the board, you get 30% discount right off the top. So don't forget that. All right. That's a good point. So RB had good golf, good food, and he saved some ladies' golf game. There we go. Yeah, sounds like a sounds like a perfect forty-eight hours, RB. All right. Well, before we get to, let's just do this quick because I'm curious, and we're then we're going to get to the full equip hotline. Got a couple of questions this week, but RB, I know you've been testing the TaylorMade MG4 wedges. Probably got some more testing to do, but what? You know, there are a lot of people out there that are probably wondering about the new wedges. What's what's the performance like? What'd you think about them? What's uh what's your initial take after doing some testing? You know, off the bat, and you know, they they told us this, and like it's kind of one of those things like every company will tell you this. Like, I'm gonna be very frank about that. Um, you know, this is our, our best feeling, best whatever kind of wedge of all time, right? It's it, all that stuff. We're never but, gonna uh, tell you it sucks. <laughs> Yeah, like no one's gonna be like, you know, with this this thing for like, you know, we we've definitely like when the I'm sure, and I'm not saying that the MG4 wedges are the Pinto of cars, but like Pinto of wedges. But I'm sure when the Ford Pinto there's a sound bite right there. They were like, (laughs) (laughs) they're like, okay, this is a beautiful car. Just like don't back into anything or it'll explode. Like you know, like no one's gonna tell you that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the wedges, I can honestly say they they are probably the softest feeling tailored wedges that they've ever made. And not only that, but from a looks perspective, I think for, for players who prefer the, the real traditional teardrop shape, they've nailed it. And, you know, they talked about it, but when we did it and like, you know, people are like, Oh, is there a huge difference in the MG3 to the MG4? If you put them side by side down in the address position, there is a noticeable difference. And I think that's a big part of it as well. The transition from the hosel it's, I think it's something that doesn't mean the last one was bad. It just means that they've, they've made these refinements because there's these little details that a lot of players are looking for. Their tour players were looking for, and they delivered on that, which I think is, is probably one of the most important elements of like the, the actual performance of the wedge. Because as we've talked about in the past, the performance can be driven very much by what a golf club looks like to a certain player, whether it be open, closed, straight leading edge, curve leading edge. Is there a lot of offset? Does the does the hosel cut in before it hits the leading edge? All of these different parts of design can contribute to the end performance because the end performance is obviously driven by the user. And for me, what I, I did, and people have asked about it because the wedges that I've been testing are a 48 degree, a 54, and a 60. And people are like, well, what about your gap? What? Like, why is the gap so big? Well, I actually bend the 58 to, sorry, I bend the 48 to 50 because I'm a junky so it it has no offset it sits very straight leading edge and then there's this the four degree gap and then the six degree gap into the 60 so um as far as performance is concerned i think they feel great they they spin a ton and i i found a few red sand bunkers when i was in pi and uh they performed uh, quite beautifully so uh, something that i'm going to continue to test but i again initial performance i think it is a golf club that I think a lot of people who are, if you're looking for new wedges, it's uh, it's a, one of the first ones to check out for sure. Yeah, that that face, the texture on the face and those grooves. If you run your if you run your finger along it, along it, it is it's aggressive, man. 
I mean, you can tell right off the bat when you get one of those things, it's it's going to spin. And, and it's held up too. I will say that. Like people have asked like, oh, it's just like one of those things. Like, you know, I played quite a few like rounds of golf for them now. Uh, a lot of like short game stuff. And most of the time you get them into the sand and, you know, all that like the laser etching or any of those like little things that are kind of there at retail that you first see like in initial impressions, they, they leave pretty quickly, but they're still like kind of there. Um, they still feel pretty rough. If you really want to, you could file your nails off. Yeah, you definitely can. Greg All Cesario right. from TaylorMade has, has put a lot of time and effort into upping the wedge game at TaylorMade. And he has, uh, he has really gone to uh, a lot of feedback from the players and asking what they want to see out of the wedges and performance characteristics and look. And to your point, RB, just getting that feel right. So I know he's dedicated to this project with the uh, the MG4s. And I mean, it's a it's a good evolution. Ever since he took over, the MG3 was was a pretty solid wedge. And the MG4 is definitely an improvement over that. Yeah, I, I would say for a company that is known for their for their woods, that is an area that I'm going to be watching closely over the next couple of years, for sure. You make a really good point, Chris. Um, Greg Cesario is is doing some special things and he's just getting started, which is, again, I feel like that's why the ceiling, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of room to grow there. Let's just say that. All right. Fully equipped hotline time. If you want to leave a voicemail for the crew, as always, you can give us a call. It's 602-935-4974. Blow us up. Call us out. Talk about your favorite golf club in the bag. Give us a review if you want. If you if you put something new in there and you've been testing it against your gamer, you want to hear about it, we can kick it around here on the podcast. Coach has, I think, two, two voicemails for this week, Coach. You want to get to the first one? Yeah, we got two for the hotline this week, and the first one has to do with the oldest bag on tour. Hey, guys. This question is Brian. So uh, well, I'd like to know who has the oldest total bag on the PGA Tour? Who's playing with the oldest junk available? Playing with the least technology right now. Y'all have a good day. Remember, he is the voice of reason. Oh my gosh. Why did we have to play the end of that voicemail, coach? <laughs> People love Gene. <laughs> I respectfully disagree. I say it with uh, all due respect. What the hell? Why did you know my day was going great and then we, then we get that. Gene I, I gotta, is the voice of reason. That's got to be Uncle Gene's long lost brother. I have many character witnesses that would beg to differ on that point, but anyways, thank you, thank you for the question. call. <laughs> I, don't even know, I don't even, know, I don't even know the answer to it, but thank you for the call. <laughs> now, with I, you guys being out on tour and doing the tour stops, I mean, what do you guys? Um, most of the guys that are coming to me are coming for new gear. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Matt, some of the. Okay, so I'll I'll give you I'll give you a couple like okay the one that I was gonna say although he's made some changes to the bag Andrew Putnam is is a guy who was playing some like truly old gear uh, a few years ago when he I was covering the Tahoe event when he won and he's I think he still had at the time it was the Adams Idea Pro the gold. Uh, Tour prototype hybrid. Chris, Chris is nodding. He knows which one I'm talking about. That's an oldie, but a goodie. And he also has a, I think it's the Cleveland. Yeah, it's the Cleveland launcher, the DST, uh, the three wood. And he had an M2 driver. And, I mean, you can kind of tell here. I mean, this is this is like old stuff that he's that he's carrying in the bag. He would probably be the one guy. I'd say Andrew Putnam. I don't think he has the driver any, anymore. I think he switched to the to the, the last time I saw him. He was playing the the ZX. I think it was the ZX. Now you're going to make me think about this. I think it was the ZX5 MK2. But I do know for a fact that the hybrid and the fairway wood were in there. And we've talked about that before. Like hybrids and fairway woods. 
that's that's one of those areas where if if a guy's got a club that he likes, he's gonna keep he's gonna keep those clubs in the bag for longer than anything else, especially if they're working. Y- yeah, I would say those those two Kisner would have been the other guy, but you're right. He's he's with Wilson. He's he's got brand new stuff in the bag there. But those Apex Pro, I think his went back to 2014. It's it's interesting. That's a great and it's a great question. I don't feel like there's a lot of old gear anymore, like full setups. I do. Can we, can we say Michael Block with his irons? But Blocky's, yeah, not, I was gonna, Blocky's not a PGA Tour pro. I think he's talking more like guys that are out there full time. That's fair. I, I was gonna That's go. Fair. I was gonna go further back only because like so he had the MCs, but if you go back to the the ones with the screw in the back, the original Tour preferred ones as well. Like Daniel Berger was still playing that. I know he's injured right now. He hasn't come back yet, but like. He was still playing those, and I know we've written stories about it before. Of like, he was on eBay buying sets of them. Like, that's kind of insane yeah. to think about that. But um, he was someone who was using those irons, and he was reluctant to change a number of clubs in his bag. And then, although he, I would say that uh, he doesn't have full full status right now, uh, but he's had a very solid PGA Tour career. Is uh, David Hearn? I mean, I saw him in the Canadian Open. He's got the same things. He's got those MCs in the bag. The MCs, like, it's nuts, right? That that is one of those sets of irons that has really stood out for a, like a number of years, and I would I mean if you want to go back, oh I've got one, like, I've got one because uh, I so Tim Heron used to get a brand new set of Ping I twos every year from Ping when they which they can still technically do is um they would cast him a new set of like orange dot Ping I twos with the when even when they think they switched the grooves he was he used the new ones. Um, and he, he would use them forever. Like, I know he doesn't use them now. Um, but he, I think he played that set for, I would say for like 15 years, like the same, the same set, not, like not the actual set, but like the same model of clubs for 15 years, which is insane. I'm so glad you brought up Tim Heron because I get to tell the Tim Heron story. He has the greatest golf bag I've ever seen in the history of golf bags. It had the lump co on the side, which I mean, his, his nickname is lumpy. So it's automatically, I'm like, if you're putting Lumpco on the side of your golf bag, you're already winning. This dude had a deli meats pouch. That and it was, was, awesome. it was refrigerated. A freaking deli meats pouch in his golf bag. I took pictures of it years ago. And I like stood there just stunned. I'm like, this guy is living right. He's got a deli meats pouch in his golf bag. <laughs> Come on, man. Why, why are more pros doing that? It's great. Um, the, only other, the only other one that I was going to point out, and I'm really I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't say this earlier. What about Henrik Stenson? There's a guy that's playing some old gear. He still has uh, the Callaway Diablo Octane 2 or 3 wood. That thing goes all the way back to 2009. Uh, and he's still playing the, the Callaway Legacy Black Irons. Those I know for sure from 2013. That's some old gear. And if you're thinking about like yeah, you know, as, as they were asking for, like, who's got the like total oldest set, uh, like a set of irons that are that old plus three wood? I'd say I'd say Stenson's got to be up there. He might have the oldest setup. I think he wins. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. All right, coach. Next question. Hey, here we go. Got you one on some extinct blades. Chris, Gene, RB, and J Wall. This is John in Little Rock. Long-time listener, first-time caller. A question for the group. In X number of years, Blades will be extinct on tour. Thanks for taking my call. Ooh, this is a good one. John, thanks for False. calling in. In X number of years, Blades will be extinct on tour. Um, I'm going to say never. I think Blades are going to always have some place on tour. I just can't imagine a world where where a tour pro isn't going to have I mean and it may not be a full a full set of blades. Let's let's that maybe that's the question. In X number of years, we're not going to see full sets of blades on the PGA tour. The guy with a full set of blades. I mean there are not many now. Like to be when well, then, they, exa- yeah, exactly so when 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 is that setup going to be extinct? What do you think? How many years? Uh, I mean, I'd still probably give it a generation. I think with the performance and the, the way people are hitting it, I think I'd give it another generation. But 
There's not a lot of three irons out there anymore. I'm to be fair. I'm, I'm shocked. Titleist makes the three iron blade for like any reason at all. Um, I'm sure there are a couple of players that like playing them, but it's, there's just, just from a performance perspective, when you're playing for money, there's, there's not a huge advantage to, to using that kind of stuff anymore. Max home has proven that he was a long time blade guy. Um, I mean, maybe there's, I mean, there's players with enough speed, which is like kind of creates that couldn't offer that advantage. Um, but I, I just don't think from a performance perspective, it, it really is something that's going to, going to continue to benefit players down the road. Now, half sets, mixed sets, all that stuff. I still think there's going to be a lot of performance advantages to them. But again, it's, I think with the way the modern golf ball is and the way golf courses are getting longer, I know Gene wants to make him keep getting longer, but that's another discussion for another day. Um, but that, that to me is where I think it's, it's going to go. Cause even in fittings, like I love playing with plates. I have sets of plates that I use like, fairly often, but um, I just don't like, if I'm going to go and play for money, I'm not, I'm not putting them in the play. Yeah. I'll say in, say in 10 years, full set, you won't see a full set of blades out on tour. It's going to be, you'll still see blades, but it's just going to be, it's just going to be a blended set. I was going to say by 2032. So that's, that's pretty spot on. Yeah, but pretty I close. mean, it, to RB's point, the, the guys with speed, I mean, some of the high school and collegiate players that I have coming through, and some of the D1 coaches are, are turning their nose at, at candidates unless they're pushing 180-plus ball speed. I mean, it's it's a speed-driven game. And, I mean, some of those blade type of irons allow those players to you know, still hit realistic yardages and distances. I mean, I don't know very many hollow cavity game improvement type of irons that are uh, traditionally lofted. Uh, to to allow for a realistic uh, that's gap a story for another day to, too. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. It's it, yeah. I'm going to play a 47 degree lofted uh, ping full cavity game improvement iron. Uh, it's just it's just not a thing. Uh, so I think there's always going to be room for that particular category on tour. I mean, with that elite level of player, the quality of ball striking you see, the consistency. I mean, the job of these guys is to hit golf balls. So, I mean, with that level of consistency, athleticism, and ball striking ability, you know, a blade for those players gives them the control over the golf ball that they want. You know, full set, yeah, I could see it phasing out to where there's some other alternatives in the long irons uh, that are more readily available to those types of players, but I don't think we're ever going to see them become extinct, per se. And we're talking about players, too, like, to that point, to your point about speed, like, like a six iron is a, is a two fifteen club now, like that's insane, right? Like that's it's like oh yeah, what are you, what are you hitting from one ninety five seven iron? Well, you know what I'm hitting from one one sixty a seven iron. So there's there's a there's a big there's a big big difference between the like what they're trying to create. If you give them something that's even lower lofted and has a has a face that's faster, it's like it's like the the Taylor made commercial from years ago where DJ was hitting God I don't know which iron it was. It was like 240 yards in the air, and it was like a five iron or three iron or something. It was like it was like M- I think it was M two, M two, yeah, I think so. And he was just it was, he was just bombing them. Was that, it was insane. Was that before it was rocket balls here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but no, it's it's kind of nuts. Like it's just I think that's there's just there's going to be a segment. It's like you can talk about uh, I want to say gas cars or classic cars or any anything that like has a has a traditional sense in like any type of sport. It's not like hockey. Like Al McInnes, who had like the hardest slap shot in the league for the longest period of time, refused to use a carbon composite stick. He won the fastest shot when I was a kid when like carbon and aluminum were like everywhere. And he's out there rocking this freaking heavy twig. And he's just snipe. I see. And now I'm getting into the Canadian lingo of slap shots and kind of I love it. Keep going. But he was just like sniping slap shots at over 100 miles an hour with this, with this wooden log of a freaking hockey stick. Right. And there are no golf, there are no golfers, sorry, no hockey players playing wooden sticks anymore. Like, and part of it too is like price, like price, even you can go buy a pretty decent uh, carbon composite stick for not a lot of money now. But the, 
it's kind of like with persimmon, right? Like you're not going to, there's, you can, you'd probably go find one and go use it for like street hockey or whatever, but like you are not finding a, a guy who's going to play persimmon on the PJ tour and they're playing for money now. And just like, you're not going to see uh, a wooden hockey stick in the, in the NHL. And I think it's a little different when it comes to like the feel and the blade, like blades and what players are trying to achieve, but they'll never go away, but they they will continue to evolve for sure. What does the smartest man in the room think? Gene? You're not talking to me, are you? I, I was going to say I already gave my input, so yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think I think blades are macho nonsense, and I think that it's always been it's it's shown that even elite players are lemmings in that they follow the trends of better players as they grow up, and it's like oh, it's this rite of passage that you go to blades, um, and I've often said. And I've had it confirmed by talking to tour players under pressure. Guess what? They miss. And sometimes they miss towards the toe. And if you hit a blade, it's going to be right bunker versus right edge of the, uh, of the green. It's just that simple. I mean, you're going to lose, you know, 10 to 12 yards, um, playing blades versus and what's happened now and and you guys all know this and and chris can speak to this you can blend a set now that's just amazing and even some of the longer irons that have a blade like look have technology in them that's that's more cavity back based in other words they're able to do hollowed out um forms and put tungsten in and do all these things so going to a traditional blade it's just macho nonsense for me because it just forces you to be that much more precise and why not allow technology to help you as much as possible because guess what they're doing it in the drivers and they're doing it in the hybrids and they're doing it in the fairway woods so it's it's kind of one of uh, it's a great question because it's like this last bastion of of I, I think just groupthink that that people are simply they grew up and they went oh when you get to a certain level of of skill you've got to go to this piece of equipment without really analyzing what the overall benefits are of a um, I'll call it a technological iron I don't even know what the category is but you can have at, at the end of the day from what I understand elite players. They hate thick top lines. They like, you know, a thin top line and they like the look of a setup of a blade. You can have that now with technology that gives you the forgiveness on off-center hits so that you don't have to hit the ball a quarter inch towards the heel and you only have about a quarter to a half inch miss area. And if you get out on the toe, you're dead. So anyways, that's my two cents. There we go. All right. I feel like that's a good place to wrap it for this week's episode. Episode 207 of Fully Equipped. As always, if you want more gear goodness, check us out on social channels. We are at Fully Underscore Equipped on Twitter, at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram. Thanks all for listening. See you next week. <laughs>